Hello, and welcome to UK Life Abroad. My name is Andre, and I'm joined by my co-hosts Brianna, Yusten, Nathan, and Alexa. With news from Ukraine playing an essential role in awareness of the country and its events, the need for uncensored, accurate journalism has existed for decades. This week, we look at the past and present workings of Ukrainian news, starting with the 1970s Ukrainian Herald underground newspaper and more recent changes to English-Ukrainian news sources. This and more on Zakhrodoni Ukrainsi, the podcast for all things Ukrainian. So last week has been a very interesting week for Ukrainian football, and it all stems down to Ukraine's latest jersey, which they announced in the lead up to Euro 2020 slash 21 because of COVID. Of course, everything's been delayed by a year. And did you guys see the jersey? Yes. Yeah, I did. What did you think of it? Um, pretty smack in the face to Russia, I'd say. The only problem I had was that when you look at it, you can barely see like the actual map of Ukraine with like Krem down the bottom. Yeah, because isn't it just like a faint like water, line out, like a watermark kind of thing? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it is only a watermark, but I think it's still a very nice statement. It's a subtle statement mm. towards uh, the territorial integrity of Ukraine, which is great. Uh, there is also something else that was controversial and probably more what caused some controversy with the UEFA um, organizers and I guess committee, and that was that inside, where normally you'd have a label for size or manufacturer, at the back of the shirt, it actually has Heroim Slava, uh, in terms of uh, you know trying to celebrate Ukrainian uh, the glory of Ukraine. And because of those two elements that were included in Ukraine's jersey. Uh, Russia sent an official complaint to UEFA saying that, firstly, the map was incorrect and that Ukraine was apparently encroaching on Russia's territorial integrity and the fact that Slava Ukraini Heroim Slava were militaristic and Nazi slogans and therefore had no place in European soccer. And this led to a whole shamozzle around the world, which, you know, ended up with the Ukrainian, um, the American embassy in Ukraine doing a photo session in Ukraine's football jerseys and UEFA's Facebook page and all other social media sites being flooded with Slava Ukraini Heroim Slava flash mobs. And in the end, UEFA had to relent after Ukraine made Slava Ukraini Heroim Slava the official motto of Ukrainian soccer. Hmm. And it, you know, had to then reapprove the jersey that it had approved months before. So now it's staying. Yeah, so Ukraine didn't have to change anything. But hey. I think Russia's main complaint, like they obviously rolled with Slava Ukraini Heroim Slava because they could get more traction on it. But I mm. think their main goal was to get the map of Crimea off the jersey. Yeah. Be- I just find it rich that they're like, they're encroaching on um, Russian territory when like Russia rolled in and took that part from Ukraine. Yeah, and I That's think as well, like, I mean, it's all, it's all <laughs> yeah, obviously very important. Well, Symbolism is like, important and politics and sport often mix, uh, whether it's the Olympics or the World Cup or other places. But I think as well, it was quite a subtle nod. It wasn't yeah, like it was, well, like, like we've talked about, it's pretty, you can barely see the outline of Ukraine on the jersey. It's quite stylized, but it does obviously provide, you know, a bit of quiet confidence and quiet strength in the belief that one day Ukraine will be one united country again and Crimea will be restored as part of our our lands. The other part of, I guess, um, the jersey is that really the the statement, I think in some ways they've made the Hroim Slava statement 
more prominent for for Ukraine and actually did a did a favor to Ukraine because really this was on the inside of the jersey, so it wasn't seen when the players were playing. Um, so I think in some ways they've probably by making a mountain out of this uh, from a Russian perspective, they've actually probably brought more attention to it and more support to it than they probably would have got normally. Hmm. Oh, yeah, and it also brought Crimea back into the international media spotlight and suddenly all these, um, like, CNN and all these other, like, international news media had to then, like, re-explain how Russia invaded Crimea and how it was still an important issue. So, you know... They kind of shot themselves in the foot. And it's really one, good. It's 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 yeah. good in some ways to, really you know, from a Ukraine perspective to have done this in the sense that it is, again, bringing awareness to, to a war that people probably, most of the global, I guess, community has fatigue to. They don't think about the war. It's not really something that's been covered in the media for a very long time in most channels. So I think this is in some ways been, um, you know, quite a good thing to raise awareness to the fact that there is a war going on, that it hasn't stopped that there's still people, you know, protecting Ukraine and, and protecting Ukraine's sovereignty, and obviously that, that you know people are dying still on the front. Um, and so this was a nice way for, I think, channeling a way for Ukrainians to show their support and patriotism for the troops and also for their country and what they believe in, in a way that you know is a bit more socially acceptable and can kind of be relatable to other people in the world. So this week we thought we would cover a newspaper, an old newspaper, from Ukraine back in the 70s. It was called the Ukrainian Herald, and it was an underground newspaper that would publish uh, journals that were independently written from different parts of uh, Ukraine. So when it was first started, um, it ran. It started in the early 1970s, and it ran for a number of years uh, with eight issues uh, total, uh, which were then put into six volumes. Now, these volumes were eventually published in the West, except for volume five, and some of them were even translated into English or French. So in our library here, we're actually lucky enough to have one. We only have volume four that was actually put into English. Um, But when you're you're looking or reading them, um, you can kind of get a sense of exactly the kinds of uh, topics that they were covering uh, especially when it comes to certain Ukrainian dissidents and you know the treatment of them in the Soviet Union at the time. So, Andrei, what can you tell us about exactly what they covered? So, the journal covered mainly illegal repressions against Ukrainian intelligentsia uh, and included reports on closed trials, prisons, or labor camp conditions against these uh, political prisoners. But they also included articles uh, defending human rights in Ukraine and exposing Russification and Russian chauvinism. But in the book here, it does mention that they are not an anti-Soviet or anti-communist publication. They are just... So you're saying that they were standing up for their so-called constitutional rights that were written into Soviet law? Pretty much, yeah. But uh, as you start reading through the book, it doesn't seem like that's the case, though. It seems that they're taking a more anti-communist stance or anti-Soviet stance. 
even though they have said in the beginning. Would you say maybe they were a little naive in saying that they weren't anti-Soviet, but then going on to criticize the government? Well, I think, um, in a sense, I think they were trying to justify the reason to um, pub- uh, publish the book, and they were trying to play it by the rules. Because I think you can, um, I think they viewed the constitution of the Soviet Union to the Soviet Union as two different entities, really, that didn't really uh, work with one another. Yeah, I would argue that just because you're protesting the government doesn't automatically make you, like, if you're protesting a Soviet government doesn't mean you're anti-Soviet. In the same way, if you're protesting the Australian government doesn't necessarily make you anti-Australian. But if, for example, you are selling out the government for whatever reason, to another country, that's when you're starting to get into anti-Soviet things and trying to tear down the government. So just because they're protesting doesn't mean it's anti-Soviet. But I mean it more in the sense that, um, like, considering that they lived in the repressive regime of Soviet Ukraine and the USSR as a whole, like, obviously printing a paper that is critical of the government is you know it's an anti-Soviet activity. Well... It's anti-government, and so that's why I think they did it, because under the law, if they're not trying to tear down the country, and if they're not trying to um, go against the ideas of communism, their paper should be allowed. But because their their, uh, their paper was still um, silenced, even though they were technically following the law, it kind of proves exactly how authoritarian it was, especially in countries in the West where a lot of people didn't know um, all the information that was coming out of the Soviet Union at the time. Well, here in the book, uh, uh, under the title The Task of the Ukrainian Visnek, a quote here is the the criticism of individuals, organs, institutions, including the highest ones, for allowing errors in the decision-making of internal political problems, particularly for violating democratic rights of individuals and nations, is not rated by the Visnek as anti-Soviet activity, but is considered as a guaranteed principle of socialist democracy and a constitutional right and honorary duty of each genuine citizen. So, um, like you're saying, uh, they're criticizing the government, but not the constitution. They're playing. They're trying to play by the rules, really. Mm, which the government didn't want. Yes. So it's kind of exposing them. I feel. I so- found it like it's quite weird to read it because they are like trying to reform Soviet Ukraine, mm. and like here in the diaspora. Yeah. Like it's like no. No, it's, like, it's like Ukraine on its own, yes, but not Soviet Ukraine. Yeah, true. I like this uh, <laughs> other quote before we get to some of the stories that they covered. They say, The necessity for such an uncensored, pub- uncensored publication arose long ago in Ukraine. There are many pro- problems which evoke the general interest of and disturb wide circles of the Ukrainian community, but these are never explained by the official press. So that was kind of the importance there that they didn't want um, anything uh, being censored by the government, so they wanted to get these stories out there that oftentimes they didn't trust what the Soviet press was saying because it was censored so much. So what are some stories that it um, covers this version? Uh, so this volume, Volume 4, opens with um, the life and death of one of the Ukrainian dissidents, Ala Horska. So she was an artist. She was one of the first representatives of the underground art movement um, and she was also a well-known activist of the human rights movement of the 1960s in Ukraine. I don't know. I kind of find the the book a bit hard to follow because it sort of chops and changes. It 
it starts off with um you know this is talking about her death and then brings in her life and then comes to a discussion of some of her peers when she oh you dream like when they're during the funeral, like all the random poetry recitals that they had. No, no, even before that, when they're talking about the stained glass window of Shevchenko. Oh, yeah, yeah. and then like the trial afterwards yeah. of, of, of other people. discussion. Yeah, yeah. Do you, do you reckon maybe because it, they have transferred the newspaper into a book format, like in the paper itself, these might have been standalone like columns, and so finishing it, you'd then move on to, like, the next story, while here they've kind of turned it into, like, a chapter, in a sense. Yeah, maybe. Didn't think of it that way. But, yeah, it is a bit weird. Like, the uh, the stories do kind of jump from bit mm. to bit. But um, in saying that, the Shevchenko stained glass window story was, like, such a weird read. Like, how they complain that the quote they used is inappropriate for socialism and um, the other stuff, like, the other things that they dive into. Like in her, the criticism of Pani Horska. Uh, so, just to depict what the stained glass window was, it was uh, a depiction of an angry Shevchenko who, with one arm, embraced a mistreated Ukrainian woman and with the other, highly raised, held a book. And it bore the inscription, I shall glorify these, sm- uh, uh, these small dumb slaves. I shall put the word on God beside them. The part I find interesting was that the official Soviet release of her death mentioned something about how it was her, well, I think, grandfather or uncle or someone was uh, responsible for the murder. However, the um, the Ukrainian Herald actually released all the information regarding um, her death or technically her murder. So people were able to get more of an unfiltered view of um, what actually happened as opposed to what the Soviet press put out at the time. And that was something that I found interesting about this as well is that, um, you know, they made a mention in this story and also um, in the trial of Moroz and how, um, you know, a lot of that was a closed trial and so no one knew anything about it. And the only way that they managed to get the information for this book was from witnesses who were there and it's sort of just not like a word of mouth but it's the only way that people can get facts from these stories because they have been censored by the government. Yeah. Yeah, and she was a very um, powerful woman um Pani Horska because she she goes to an interrogation at the KGB and they bring out these like a beaten out confession out of one of her friends and she just spits it back in their face and says that's completely not true and I'm just like you'd have to be very brave to walk into the local KGB headquarters in Ukraine and be like, your information is wrong. Yeah, this one covers a whole bunch of um topics as well, but there was another interesting one in there, Alexa, that you found. Yeah, so in the towards the end of volume four, they kind of have like a roundup section where they talk about different stories from around Ukraine. And I thought one that was quite interesting was they talk about the um, the repression of the Ukrainian Greek Catholic Church in Lviv and specifically in the villages where the church was still functioning while still underground in a more open fashion because the citizens of the villages had allowed, had ensured that whilst the church was not allowed to openly worship, that the priest could still come and serve mass in church or within the homes of the villagers. And when the town mayor found out, he called the local army garrison to come in and surround like one of the houses where the priest was having lunch with the parishioners. 
and he told them that the priest was a provocateur. And when the soldiers walked in, um, they became like the it quotes in the article. The soldiers became very embarrassed, and remarks could be heard. But it's a priest. What kind of spy is this? And so. <laughs> Even, like, the soldiers themselves who, like, you know, they have to follow orders. They become very embarrassed that, like, you know, they've been called out of their base to, you know, come and hit a priest. And even they know that that's not right. Just made, made me think when you said, oh, following orders. I was like, this is post-World War Two when the whole I was just following orders thing was already, like, no longer a valid defense. But yeah. still, they go along with it. Yeah, that's interesting. It kind of goes along with that whole... Soviet idea of um, weeding out religion. And it kind of has, like, later on in the story, it kind of has, like, that North Korean vibe where the the children of former priests or priests that had converted to Russian orthodoxy were prevented from pursuing certain educational opportunities, such as going to university or being limited to what degrees they could study because of the profession that their like fathers had taken. Yeah, so when we look at these kinds of stories, we can kind of see how it's important to get the actual facts um, of the situations as opposed to what, at the time, the Soviet um, press would have been putting out. Um, so in that case, let's take a little look at who was one of the people or some of the people that were involved in it. And the main person who was uh, linked to the Ukrainian Herald was a guy by the name of Vyacheslav Chornovil. Now, he was actually a quite important political figure in Ukraina, uh, given the fact that close to his death, he was actually going to... It was uh, rumoured that, or it was suggested that he was going to start running for uh, president of Ukraina. Uh, so, if we look a little bit at his history, he originally was a student and he was actually denied entry into the Kiev Pedagogical Institute due to his political beliefs at the time, despite the fact that he actually passed the entrance exam. Uh, after this, he worked in various jobs. Uh, for example, the key of hydroelectric system. He was the department head of a newspaper until he was eventually fired and he was sentenced to remedial labor for expressing contempt of the Soviet judicial system. And I think it's important here to note judicial system because this seems to be a recurring theme whenever it comes to um, some of his work. Um, then once he was released from that, he ended up, uh, he began circulating documents re- relating to uh, Ukrainian dissidents uh, who were imprisoned for protesting. This is before the Ukrainian Herald actually began. And all of this work eventually led him to being sentenced by a Lviv Oblast court to three years in a labor camp. Um, fortunately, he only spent 18 months in that camp. And he was released um, as a part of an amnesty deal in 1969. So then we get to 1970, um, the time of the Ukrainian Herald's um, founding. And he began his work uh, again in various jobs, but he also began to distribute the independent journals that people were writing for the Ukrainian Herald. And after two years and five issues of doing this work, he ended up getting uh, rearrested after he sent a strongly worded letter to the Central Committee of the Communist Party of Ukraine, um, again talking about a, um, a protester who had been imprisoned. So there seems to be this recurring theme of he is basically trying to use the laws of the Ukrainian Soviet 
Socialist Republic to kind of like stand up for Ukrainians who were being pros- uh, persecuted at the time. Now, I know from our perspective now, given what we know about the Soviet Union, we can kind of see that as like, oh, well, that was a pointless effort because of how tyrannical they were. But he was still kind of kind of trying to work within the realms of the law. And I guess you could say I was a bit naive, but he really did expose exactly how um, corrupt the uh, the uh, Soviet government was. So he was actually really... Fa- oh, go ahead, Alexa, what are you going to say? I was just going to say, yeah, it, um, it all relates to the whole dissident movement of the 1960s and 70s that occurred in Ukraine during the the short period of liberalization that also occurred during that time period. And it was like that first real soviet generation in a sense that they had no memory of the war like world war ii or or like the foundation of the soviet union they had grown up in peace during the soviet union and whilst they were you know committed to reforming the soviet union the soviet union was not committed to reform and in a sense it was two very diametrically opposed movements and i'm sure there's an alternate history where maybe the reformers succeeded and the Soviet Union was reformed in a sense to be a more democratic system, but Mm. I don't know how that would have turned out. Yeah, that would have been interesting. (laughs) So he's actually most famous. Well, he rose to fame um, as a result of what was called the Chodronville Papers. So this was uh, released as a book, and I actually have this book courtesy of my Voika. Um, And inside the dust cover has a summary, and it says, In the last months of 1967... A singular document was smuggled, a few pages at a time, out of the Soviet Union. It was the petition of journalist Vyacheslav Chornovil, formerly post-secretary of the Commissol, the Young Communist League, to the public prosecutor of the Ukrainian SSR, protesting the preemptory arrest of young Ukrainians for the possession of forbidden literature. On November 15, 1967, in a secret trial held in Lviv in western Ukraine, an outraged Chodnovil was sentenced to imprisonment in an undisclosed labor camp. His crime, sending petitions and appeals on behalf of unjustly convicted Ukrainians to Soviet authorities, and refusing to appear as a court witness in what he believed was an illegally conducted trial. So, again, we see him trying to work within the judicial system and standing up for um, these reforms. He even goes further in the book. He actually, there's one part here. He talks about what is not punishable, and he mentions under Article 62 of the Criminal Code of the Ukrainian SSR, in conformity with the interest of the working people. And he goes on. He says, the citizens of the USSR are guaranteed by law a freedom of speech, freedom of the press, freedom of assembly, including holding of mass meetings, freedom of street processions and demonstrations. And so, obviously, none of this existed in the Soviet Union um, to the degree that uh, other Western countries had. So, he then goes on to say, um, the Supreme Soviet should either annul the article or define it um, concretely. In its present formulation, this article completely negates the freedoms guaranteed to citizens by the Constitution of the USSR. And he's talking about here how parts of the actual workings of the government and workings of the law enforcement and workings of the judicial system did not actually reflect what was in the constitution at the time. So I guess given the fact that he wasn't able to succeed in reforming, you could see it as like a futile effort. But I think it's really important because it doesn't give, or didn't give at the time, 
the Soviet authorities the leg to stay, oh, you know, we're only arresting people that were uh, breaking the law. We're only arresting people that are, you know, anti-Soviet or anti-communist. Given the fact that he was trying to work within the law and still getting arrested really brought forward a lot of evidence of exactly how corrupt and how much of an authoritarian country the Soviet Union was when it came to dissidents and people speaking out legally against the government. Yeah, and um, I think his work in fighting for the truth in the Soviet Union culminated in him being one of the founders of the Ukrainian Helsinki group, which was a organization established by Ukrainian dissidents to monitor human rights abuses within Ukraine and the wider Soviet Union. And it was established on the basis of the Helsinki Treaty signed between the Soviet Union and the US Hmm. back then. And afterwards, like after he came to probably more national fame through that organization, he then went on to be elected the leader of the Ukrainian party Ruch, and eventually became a member of the Ukrainian par- Ukrainian Soviet Parliament and helped pave the way for independence in 1991. Until he was killed in a car crash. In 1999, four days after he had announced he was planning to run for the presidency again. Sus. Quite <laughs> sus. <laughs> I know there's a lot of theories that um, still to this day people don't believe that he was that car crash was a complete accident. Um, so yeah, what do you reckon, Alexa? Assassination? Oh, there's a lot. The 90s were a very dirty period of Ukrainian politics. Like, even after he'd lost his first run at the presidency in 1991, he was very disappointed that the winner of that election, like uh, President Kravchuk, went on to then co-opt his slogans and some of his party's um, political platforms. And he was like... You were, you were like a communist like six months ago. What are you doing? Brianna, so do you think that the um, the purpose or the endeavor of the Ukrainian Herald trying to work within Soviet laws and bring out, you know, uh, uncensored journalism, do you think that was a positive or negative? Look, I think it was a noble effort, but, um, you know, it's Russia, it's the USSR. Um, I don't think that anything that you tried to do back then to change it would ever work. How many um how many copies managed to make it out of Ukraine and into the West? Um, good question. I have that here. Um, so we've got eight issues. All of them except volume five were published in the West, and only some of those were in English or French. So yeah, all except one. Just imagine have- like someone like leaving the country and it's like, let me slip one page of this newspaper into my suitcase. Yeah, well, that's how they smuggled out those Chernobyl papers initially. Yeah. That had to be done. Oh, I think um, in like the long term, it was a good effort. Only because when you can, when you look back at now, you can't really view the Soviet Union as a, or as like a free or like a democratic, yeah, a country that you could live in. Really, mm. so it, even though it didn't, um, it didn't really change much when um, this was all happening. But I think. Later on, when you look back at it, you can you can change the people's minds now, and you can start viewing the Soviet Union in a more negative light, just to see how corrupt they really were. Yeah, and it's because they they their efforts kind of revealed 
and brought out that evidence. Um, I'd say the Ukrainian Herald in itself played a very important role in that it showed that people were dissatisfied with the Soviet system, not only in Western Ukraine, but even in the so-called like Soviet heartland of the country of like Dnipropetrovsk, or as Dnipro was known back then, or even like Donetsk and Luhansk, and people were fighting for change back then, and that this was a national movement of Ukrainians all over the country fighting for a better future for themselves and their children. All this talk about the Ukrainian Herald obviously points back to a time when it was very important for Ukrainian issues to be shared, uh, particularly at a time when Ukraine wasn't a free nation. And one of the things that those pioneers that, that you know led that endeavor did realize was the need to publish this information in other languages other than Ukraine. You know, Nathan just mentioned English and French as versions that were published. Uh, but I think this is something that continues to resonate as an important thing today. And Yunyan, uh, which is a website and information agency that's been around for quite a while, but most people know it's in website form, uh, started producing uh, English-based versions of their news in 2014. Um, and I think it was quite a forward-leaning idea at the time during Yoramaidan uh, and obviously the lay of the war to kind of give better awareness to the stories on the ground. And we've also mentioned on this program um, the idea of Kiev Post um, being a very important resource for that same reason. Uh, I guess I just looking around the world and looking at how a lot of nations that aren't English speaking project power. A good example is Qatar with their Al Jazeera network that's obviously in Arabic but also has a more dominant reach in English. And even Russia has Russia Today that it funds quite seriously to provide English-based news to project to the world and let more people consume it. So I guess to the group, I'm, I'm just curious. I mean, I think it's quite sad that the, the news that Union now is not going to support English anymore. They are looking to do, I believe, some kind of other project in English, but the current support of Union being one-to-one in English and Ukrainian is going away. How, how important do we think this is? And we are, is Ukraine doing enough to project its own voice on the world stage? Well, for me, I usually read the news in the morning at work. Um, so I, I I read from Atlantic Council and then like even uh, I done press, but these ones are a lot more in depth articles. But um, I do read Unian uh, just for like daily updates um, in Ukraine because there's a lot more topics that I see that don't really get picked up really in general. Well, yeah, it's like they and KF Post both publish more like day-to-day articles. So like they'll do like articles on like how many COVID cases they were that day or like just random stories that happen throughout Ukraine while like Atlantic Council and Yevromaidan Press will kind of do more feature piece stories in a sense, which is why like Yuani and KF Post play such an important role because they cover day-to-day happenings in ukraine yeah i would have to go along with that um especially i remember when we we're covering the dom tv story and i remember saying that look it's one thing if you're going to be you know doing russian uh, broadcasting in the occupied territories and all that but the biggest issue was that because they took the english out of it that creates a massive barrier between ukrainian news and uh, not just the, the diaspora, but actually the rest of the world as well. So now that you have a major uh, news outlet in Ukraine now also struggling with this, 
um, it's limiting news out there for the rest of the world as well. Um, I'm actually on the article for it. And um, just some guy commented underneath, which I thought was, I know it's anecdotal, but he says, that's a shame. Now I won't be able to catch up on news in Ukraine. If anything, you should stop publicizing in Russian and stick to Ukrainian and English only. But see, that's just an example of someone who's now lost his source of Ukrainian news um, because of the fact that, you know, he probably can't read Ukrainian and now he's stuck not knowing what's going on. I, I think the other challenge that comes from all this is, unfortunately, the news, uh, and I'm, I'm not sure what our resident journalists would have think of this opinion, but the, the news industry is not what it once was, and arguably in a lot of senses that there's a lot of recycled news and other source, uh, news that carries from one source, sometimes unverified to all the other news sources. And obviously, I think if, if there is a sort of trend to kind of scale back some of the English-based news out of Ukraine, it could start hurting that ability for other other world news services to pick up stories and and find those stories yeah you know, a little bit more easily than they used to, than they could before yeah definitely if uh, if a lot of other news organizations don't have as good access into ukraine as obviously unyan did then it would be very very difficult for this sort of information to be disseminated out to to everyone and then we can talk about the darker side of news called social media, which only relies on repeating stories from one side to the other. Mm-hmm. And look, I think the challenge here is I think there was a lot of hope for things like Ukraine Today to become a kind of consistent voice for, you know, I guess, reliable news from Ukraine in English, uh, much like Deutsche Welle for Germany um, and French to, and France 24 for France. Um, and, and obviously, you know, national broad carriers like the BBC and, and others around the world, the CBC in Canada or the ABC in Australia. But I think um, more needs to be done in this regard, I guess, to make sure that, you know, Ukraine is focusing on telling its story effectively uh, through the other mediums I've already mentioned, but also hopefully in a new form with Union. In the news this week. A bill has been introduced to the Verkhovna Rada to make organ transplants more affordable for Ukrainians. Under the proposed bill, the procedure will be VAT-exempt. Organ transplants have only been legal in Ukraine since 2019. 2021 has so far seen 48 transplants performed in the country. However, due to high costs, the procedure remains out of reach for many. Lviv is preparing to host the 10th annual Leopolis Jazz Fest. This year's festival will take place on the 24th to the 28th of June. In 2019, the festival featured around 300 musicians from 15 countries and has been labelled by the Guardian newspaper as one of the best festivals in Europe. The Liberal Party Holos, or Voice, is on the verge of splintering, with half of the party's deputies creating their own unofficial parliamentary group, Spravid Levist, or Justice. Holos has been in trouble for weeks, with many high-profile members quitting the party. Many of the disagreements stem from the actions of current party leader Kira Rudek and the party's parliamentary leader Yaroslav Zelenyak. The latest controversy stems from forcing parliament to explain a bill that, if passed, will no longer require foreign movies to be translated into Ukrainian, paving the way for an influx of Russian-dubbed movies. A cave court has handed down the first ever prison sentences to former members of the Berkut Special Riot Police for their brutality against peaceful protesters during the Yevromaidan. Former Berkut commanding officers Viktor Esmond and Volodymyr Mohonya were each sentenced to three years in prison for abuse of power, accompanied by violence in relation to their actions on November 30th, 2013. 
On this day, the Berkut violently dispersed a peaceful protest on Independence Square in Central Cape. At least 79 people were injured, most of them students. <laughs>